Well, good morning, City Church. So good to be with you uh, here this morning. It's good to see many of your faces. Um, you know, the scriptures say that in the light of the king's face, there is life. Well, it's a lot of life to see your faces this morning as we gather together. And I'm really thankful for this opportunity, not only to see your faces and to be with you, but also to be able to open God's word and to study and to learn and to grow together uh, as he's promised to be with us and to actually knit us together as his people for the good uh, of uh, his kingdom and the service of him in this world. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. Uh, we're, we have been working our way over the last couple of months uh, in a study through the book of Mark. And in that book, uh, and then through this study, we've been asking a big question, and that really is the question that Mark has been asking, and that is, who is Jesus, and why should we care who he is? It's a big question that many people in our culture ask today. You know, there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. There's a lot of confusion about why he came, or what he did, or why that should matter in our lives. Uh, and these gospels uh, are not just stories, they're true stories. Uh, that help us to unpack these great questions and then apply them in our lives in such a way that we can fully understand the glory of what Christ came to do in this world. Uh, so that's what we're going to be doing today. Uh, and that's the question I'd like for you to keep in your mind uh, this week and all these weeks that we're looking at. Who is this Jesus and why did he come and why should we care? So let's pray now and ask the Lord to be with us as we begin to open up his word to study this morning. Most Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity and we just pray that you would remember your promises, that as we gather as your people and we open up your word, that your spirit will be with us, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond. And that, Lord, that you, through the power of your word, would transform our lives, draw us to the deep understanding of our need for you and the wonders and heights of your grace, and transform all of our lives, knit us together, your people, empower us, to serve you in everything that we do. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we've been walking along through the book of Mark. And as we've been going along, uh, Mark uh, told us right in the beginning uh, what this was all about. He said that this is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God. And in that, uh, he began throughout the stories that he told of Jesus' life to help us to understand who Jesus is and why he came into this world. And what we've discovered in that is that uh, this great message of who Jesus was went forward with great power into that community, that culture at that time. And as it did so, uh, it began more and more to reveal uh, this great story of who Jesus is and why he's come. And, and that didn't uh, just happen in kind of easy ways. Many people, when they heard this story, uh, were happy to hear it. They responded to it. But many, many more people, when they heard the story, were actually deeply offended by it. And that is what I want us to look at here this morning. What we've seen already is that Jesus has been one, as he's traveled, who has offended a lot of different people. First, we saw, as we've been kind of studying along, that he offended the cultural elites, both the Sadducees, who were the liberals at the time, and the uh, Pharisees, who were the conservatives at the time, uh, both of them, for different reasons, were deeply offended by what Jesus had to say to them. Now, in our, like in our culture today, these two groups had very little that they agreed on in any way, form, or fashion. But they did agree on one thing, and that one thing is that they did not like Jesus. He was offensive to them. And so what we're told is that they actually began to work together to come up with a plan to get rid of this Jesus. And eventually that plan would culminate in an attempt and a successful attempt to actually kill him on the cross. So 
it's an interesting thing that this offense actually led to his death. But uh, just in case you might be thinking that Jesus was simply kind of like a populist leader uh, who offended only the cultural elites, what we get in this story today is a story of how he offends not only the elites, but everyone else as well. And that's what I want us to dive in and look at this morning and why this idea of offense actually matters to us and how we think about who Jesus is. If you'll take the time to look with me here at verse 1, what we're told here right off the bat is that uh, Jesus uh, went away and he came to his hometown as he was traveling. And his hometown was Nazareth. We know this not only from this passage, but from many passages throughout the scripture. And Nazareth, uh, what you need to know about this little town, uh, it, it, was, it was a little village in the middle of nowhere. Uh, people in this town uh, were generally uneducated. They were blue collar. They were typically pretty poor. Uh, Nathaniel, famously in uh, John 1, when uh, he is told that Jesus has come, that the Messiah has come and he's come from Nazareth, responds to that by saying, could it be possible that anything good could come out of Nazareth? So you can kind of get a sense of the kind of the cultural understanding of how most people thought about this little village. Um, this is exactly the kind of background, Pogdunk town, that most cultural elites love to make fun of, right? And this, we are told, is exactly where Jesus was from. This is where he grew up. This is where the people he played with as a kid we're told that his father was a carpenter. We know that from this passage, but others as well. He was a carpenter's apprentice. And so many of the people that he came into contact with when he came out probably had furniture in their house that Jesus built. Think about that for a minute. That's pretty cool to think about. In fact, some of them probably uh, even knew him so well that they knew his family so well that they knew everything about him. And as a result, you might expect that they would have been overjoyed at the fact that somebody from their own little town, from their own little village, had gone out and made a name for himself. That the Messiah himself had come from Nazareth. You might even expect that they, when he returned, would have thrown a big celebration and been super excited uh, that their, uh, their favorite son had returned home. And now they get to celebrate the wonder of who he is and what he has done. You might expect all this. However, what we see here in the passage is exactly the opposite of that. In verse 2, we are told that Mark tells us that on the Sabbath, Jesus went and taught in the village synagogue, which was a common kind of practice at the time. And after hearing him, the people took offense at him. The Greek word here is actually scandalon, uh, which is where we get the, the English word scandal. They were scandalized by what he said. They were deeply offended by the message that he gave. They were deeply offended by him. I mean, you know, you could kind of think of the people there responding to him, saying in their minds, I mean, who does this guy think he is, right? We know him. We know his family. Where does he get off claiming to be the Messiah? Where does he get off claiming to have such wisdom and authority? Where does he get off telling us that we need to repent and to believe in him? This is little Jesus from the block, right? Right? We knew him, we saw him fall down and scrape his knees. You're telling me that this guy is the Messiah. I won't believe that. I refuse to believe that. And so you get this kind of response. And now I was church planning many years ago uh, when we began our church plant about, uh, I guess it's about almost 11 years ago now, I would had to travel around the country and raise support. And one of the places that I went to was uh, the hometown that I grew up in when I was little. And I went and spoke there. 
And I preached there, I spoke there, I presented kind of what I was doing. And there were a lot of people that were really glad to see me come back. But the shocking thing was that there were several people that were actually deeply offended. This was a small rural town uh, in Tennessee. I'm not going to tell you where it is. Uh, but uh, there were people there that thought that I had grown too big for my britches. There were people there that thought that who was I to come and to, uh, to talk to them about these things. And you could tell that they were offended. In fact, there were kind of some blunt and kind of like really off-putting comments that were made in different situations in a very Southern way, right? <laughs> but you could tell that people were offended at me and, who, and what I had become. And in this, you kind of get the sense that the old adage is true. Familiarity breeds contempt. Bill Lane, who's a, in his commentary, is a, a theologian, in his commentary on this passage, says that the, their discernment of Jesus could not penetrate the veil of ordinariness that surrounded him. Did you hear that? The discernment, their discernment of Jesus could not penetrate the veil of ordinariness that surrounded them. They couldn't get past the fact that they knew him. They couldn't get past the fact of the ordinariness about him, and therefore they were deeply offended by him. And this highlights an important theme in the Gospels, one that I've already mentioned, and that is that Jesus and the Gospel are deeply offensive. And according to the Bible, if you don't understand this, if you don't begin to wrap your mind around the offensiveness of Jesus and the offensiveness of the Gospel, if you yourself have never been personally offended by him and his message, and the Bible actually says that you don't fully understand who he is and why he came into the world. Now, that can feel, feel confusing, right? So let's try to unpack that a little bit. First of all, what I want us to think about is that as we notice here in this passage, Jesus talks about the idea that, or the scriptures talk about the idea that he was philosophically offensive to the people there. If you look here, um, you'll see here in the passage that Jesus makes a direct connection in verse six between the people that he came into contact in his hometown, their offense at him and their belief in him. He says here that they were offended, deeply offended, scandalized, and that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. So you see the connection that's being made there. Their offense actually led to their unbelief in him and what he had to say. Now, as a pastor, I can tell you that I meet with a lot of people um, who are exploring or kind of unpacking or trying to understand Christianity on a number of different levels. I love these conversations. I love getting together with, you, with people with that. If you have questions about Christianity, I would love to get together with you. But one of the interesting things about those conversations uh, is that almost without exception, everybody that wants to meet with me and talk about Christianity is fascinated by Christianity at some point. There's something about it that they find to be attractive, that they find to be interesting, uh, and therefore they want to explore that more. Uh, some of these things people tend to love, kind of the idea of Christ's love, Christ's grace, uh, the idea that, you know, we're supposed to uh, repent and, like, forgive our enemies. There's a general sense that people love that idea in this culture. However, almost without exception as well, people are also deeply offended by other aspects of Jesus and his teaching, what I mean. And so people are kind of caught in this kind of tension point between those two things. You know, they made love is love. Everybody loves love, right? But on the other side, the idea that Jesus is a king, that he is a lord, is a hard thing to get around. That idea that he has come to judge the living and the dead. In general, people in our culture, I've found, love the idea of Jesus as a savior, but really dislike the idea that he is their lord or king and that he gets to set the rules and that what he says is true in this world. 
We hate that idea. It really rubs us the wrong way. It's offensive to us. And therefore, people struggle with this. And as a result, people often tell me that these, in these meetings that while they are interested in exploring Christianity, at the same time, they cannot get over this offense that they feel. And they refuse to believe that the things that Jesus says are true because they are offended by this. And most of them don't realize it, but by saying this, they're actually making a pretty radical philosophical claim in this. Because a particular claim of Jesus, if, if, a, if a particular claim of Jesus makes you feel a particular way, i.e. offended, the, the conclusion is that therefore it must not be true. Do you get that? Because you're offended by something he said, by something that he's claimed to be true, i.e. that necessarily means that it can't be true in our life. Now, that doesn't seem to logically make sense, right? But that's the vast majority of how a lot of people think about this. Elizabeth Colbert, who's a writer for The New Yorker, wrote an article a couple years ago, uh, and she did an extensive amount of research in the area of, of feelings versus fact. And in that, she showed that the beliefs that we hold in this world are much more affected by the way that we feel about something oftentimes than actually the facts that we run into in this world. She said, even much more so than any of us would want to or be willing to admit oftentimes. And if you really step back and begin to think about that, that's really true. Uh, a couple years ago, I watched a uh, kind of a late night talk show and they did a whole episode on the idea of feelings versus facts. And in this, uh, they showed a clip of this, and I'm not going to tell you who it is because this isn't, I, that's not the point to say which side of it is, but it was a fascinating one because in this clip they showed a reporter who was interviewing a particular politician. And in that, the reporter starts off the interview by saying that, you know, statistics show that violent crime in the United States has really reduced over the last couple years. And the guest responded by saying, yes, but the average, average American doesn't believe that violent crime is down. They don't think that they're safer. And the reporter responded to that. She said, but okay, sure, but uh, we are safer and it is down. That's a fact. And then the, guy, the, the guest responded by saying, no, that's just your view. And the reporter responded to that and said, but these are actually facts. They are proven national statistics that were done by non-political things. This is not a political statement. It's just kind of a statement that was made based on a lot of research that was done. And his response was, but what I said is also a fact. The current view is that there are all these statistical studies out there and that they may be theoretically correct, but it's also correct that people feel unsafe. And the reporter responded by saying, you know, I understand, you know, how people may feel about that, but it's also important to know that these are just feelings. They're not based on fact. The end result of that doesn't support the reality of what's going on. And the guest responded and said, well, as a politician, I'll tell you that you can stick with the theoretical facts and I'll stick with how people feel. And it was fascinating because the host of the show then went on to kind of unpack this and he marveled at the kind of the logic that went into this. And he said, you know, he kind of laid out the kind of the argument that was being made here. And this was it. He said, people can create feelings in themselves and in others. We know this. Politicians can, speakers can, we can do that in it ourselves. And in our culture today, feelings actually have become to equal facts. And therefore, we've come to believe that people can create facts and create their own reality. And so the, when the question comes, what is true, our answer oftentimes, and if you really think about it, I think you'll know that this is true, is, well, how do you feel about it? 
right? And the host joked that this, uh, went on to joke that this reporter had actually brought facts to a feeling spite, right? And the question I have for you is, have you ever marveled recently in the world that we're living in currently, especially in our culture, at the unbelief that people often have, even in the face of seemingly overwhelming facts to the contrary? Have you ever watched the news recently or talked to a relative when you've gone home or been around other people and you've just been overwhelmed, your head is spun at not being able to understand how these kind of things fit together between feelings and facts. All kinds of political issues that go into this, right? I'm not taking sides on this. It's on both sides, right? For many years, one side said that, you know, uh, what's true for you is true for you, and then got really surprised when the other side started saying, well, facts are just feelings. Right? And so we're now in this kind of cycle of that everybody doesn't know where we actually have a foundation to kind of live on. This has bled its way out in all kinds of ways in our culture. It bleeds its way out in how we watch sports. I went and watched a soccer game with a couple of guys last night, and one of the conversations we had is, you know, well, was that really a foul or not? Because I don't want it to be a foul, and therefore I'm going to get upset when I see it on TV, but it probably was a foul, Right? And it affects the way that I feel about it and how I want things to be true. And that's a simple one. And it goes all the way up to kind of radical things. Where one of the things that I'm seeing consistently on the news right now is that people in Ukraine are calling their relatives in Russia and talking to them about the horrors that they're experiencing. And their relatives are refusing to believe that there's a war going on. Watch one last night where this woman actually was talking to her grandmother and her grandmother says, that's not true, there is no war, you just need to go home. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing how these things can affect our lives. And what I wanna point out in all of this is the same is true with oftentimes how we think about Christianity and about Jesus. Alvin Planica, who's a famous philosopher once said, most people who reject Christianity don't often do so because they have actually really examined the evidence and found it wanting, really thought about what Jesus has said, looked at what Jesus said, looked at the evidence for the Gospels. But because of their culture, through art and media and education, has developed a plausibility structure that says that Christianity is offensive and therefore can't be true. And this is one of the things that we're feeling is a, is a specific pressure right now, right? Our culture throughout history has oftentimes been predominantly kind of uh, at least driven by a Judeo-Christian worldview and moral system. That has shifted radically over the last 20 or 30 years. What used to be over the, you know, 20 years ago or 15 or 20 years ago when I, or before that, well, even when I was in high school, is that oftentimes people that didn't believe in Christianity would still see Christians as kind of like your, uh, you know, that aunt that you have in your family who's prone to say a few racist things every once in a while or, or say something that's really offensive, you know, and you just kind of like shush her away, but like you still love her and she's still considered part of the family, right? And now it's moved to actually being something that's seen as dangerous to human flourishing. Not only deeply offensive in that way, but dangerous. And it heightens the level of how we actually can interact or how we should interact with these things. 
my meetings oftentimes when I meet with non-Christians, when this subject comes up, you know, I always like to point out the fact that these are big things and these are hard things to kind of wrap your head around. But where, where should we start? If you start just with the offense of the feeling of those things, you'll never be able to kind of explore whether or not something is true or not. And so I often ask a question, something along the lines of like, you know, are you saying that because you are offended by this particular teaching in this particular way, that that means that Jesus isn't who he says he is, that he's not the Messiah, that he's not God? And usually what people will say is, no, I don't mean that. And my response to that is, well, maybe that's a good place to start, right? Back up, think through these things. What does it look like for us, not just to react like we often do in our culture, but to back up and actually begin to think through what is really true? And ask ourselves, am I responding against this? Am I reacting against this? And what about against Jesus, against his teachings? Because I'm offended by them or because they're actually really true? Now, that's not a smoking gun. It's not like, you know, a gotcha moment. It's just a way for us to begin to think deeply about how we can sort through the mess of how our culture tends to think about offense and how that drives the way that we believe in things in our world, right? But that's not the only place we have to go to in this passage. The second thing is this. I want us to notice here that Jesus is not only philosophically offensive to the people he comes into contact with, he's also culturally offensive. As we've already seen, Jesus has gone about his ministry, and as he's done so, he succeeded in offending almost every person he's come into contact with. He's offended cultural elites and cultural outcasts, white-collar, blue-collar, educated, uneducated, liberal, conservative, rich, poor, city people, country people, everyone. Jesus, you need to understand, is an equal opportunity offender. It's all over the scriptures. Now, how does this make sense? The recognition of this fact actually drives many people to a place where they reject Christianity out of hand, reject the things of Jesus out of hand, because they see that he offends so many people in so many different ways. But I want to make an argument this morning, and this argument is this, that if we step back away from that, it actually, far from being something that should drive us to a place of rejecting Jesus, is actually a clue, I would believe, to actually understanding why this might be true. And here's what I mean by that. Tim Keller, uh, he tells a story of how he used to do question and answer times after his service. I used to do this in my other church. I know that City Church used to do this in the beginning. After church, people would gather together to answer questions. We may be doing that again soon. I hope that we're going to do a couple of those things. I'm looking forward to that. Um, but in these question and answer times, Keller would talk about the fact that oftentimes when people, especially non-Christians, would come and hear him preach, they would be offended by a particular thing that he was talking about or a particular part of Jesus' message that he was preaching on in that particular passage. And on one occasion, he told the story of a woman who was very upset at the claim that Jesus had made in a passage that he had the right to judge mankind and punish those who didn't put their faith in him alone for their salvation. And in response, Keller asked her if she had ever considered how culturally Western that offense actually was. He goes on to say that people in Asia and people in uh, the Middle East and many parts of Africa are not offended by this idea at all. In fact, they are not offended at all by the idea of a judge, a king who rules, who has a particular 
you know, uh, authority by which he can say what is right and wrong in this world. They are not offended by the idea of justice in that way. However, Keller went on to say that they are deeply offended by the things that you are offended by. I.e., all truth is based on kind of personal feelings and there is no ultimate justice in this world at the end of time. Because it's all based on how we act and what we do. And in this, he asked this question, and this is a shocking question to ask in our culture. He said this, are you saying that your culture is better or more right than theirs? Have you ever thought about that? Many of the things that we're deeply offended by in this world are deeply Western in how we approach these things. There are many other cultures that have different ideas on that, but we tend to think that we're better than everybody else. We're more enlightened. We have a better understanding of reality than the rest of the world does and the rest of history does. And therefore, it leads us to kind of be very snobbish about how we approach these things. And what he said is her response when he asked this question was, no, of course not. I would never say anything like that. And then he said, okay, then you, have you ever considered the possibility that if there really was one true religion and one true God who created everything, that it would make perfect sense that his claims would actually offend every culture on the face of the earth in a different place? because it's the standard by which we judge everything. Therefore, the offense that you are experiencing right now might actually be a clue that the claims of Jesus are actually true and that he really is who he says he is. Now, again, that's not a smoking gun, not trying to have gotcha statements in this, but it's something that's well worth thinking about as we think about the offense of Jesus and the claims of his truthfulness. But again, that's not the only place we need to land. There's one more place that I want us to unpack this morning, and that's this. The final thing is that, that I want us to see here in the passage is Jesus not only offends every type of person and every culture he comes into contact with, he also offends every person individually. John Stott, in his book, Basic Christianity, says that no one who ever came into contact with Jesus in the Bible ever responded to him moderately. Everyone is personally offended by him at some point. And in our passage this morning, we were told that Jesus does just that. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and preached to them. And the context of this sermon we can see in the passage is one of repentance and faith. He called them to repent and to put their faith in him alone. And as a result, they were deeply offended by what he said. Now again, when I meet people as a pastor and talk to them about Christianity, they often are offended, as I've said before, by some point of Christianity but it often kind of get the sense that if I could just remove that offense, that one offense, and show that what Jesus is teaching was actually the same as what they believed about stuff, then everything would be okay. It's what we long for. We long for that kind of consistency in our life. We long for those kind of obstacles to be removed. And we think that the solution to that is actually causing whatever we're looking at to remove the obstacles from itself and to align itself with us and how we believe about things. But here's the question that I often ask. Just for the sake of argument, say that there is a God in the world. He does exist. And if that God were to agree with you 100% on everything that you thought and believed about and everything that you did, he affirmed, what kind of God would that be? Listen, I've got, I've got news for you. If you have a God who believes and 
believes is true, 100% of everything that you believe, you are your own God. And here's the real question in that. How's that working out for you? How's it working out for you? In a world of expressive individualism, we typically think, like, if you could just look inside of yourself and find out what's true and then express that into the world, you know, everything would be great and everything would be good. And if you could just find a God who would agree with all those kind of things, then everything would be wonderful. But what happens when you look inside of yourself and you don't like what you see? When it's dark and broken and ugly, what do you do then? According to the Bible, the root of all human problems and brokenness and suffering, the root of what exists inside of our hearts, if we're just brave enough to look in, is the fact that in the beginning of time, we were offended by the idea that God could rule over us and that he was our king, and therefore we rebelled against him and sought to make ourselves our own gods. And unfortunately, it did not work out the way that we hoped. In fact, we made a huge mess of the world, we made a huge mess of our lives, and we made a huge mess of everything that we come into contact with, and that continues today. If you don't believe me, just turn on the news for a few minutes, right? We all know that it's true. However, we did succeed in one area, we're told, and that is to offend the one true and living God. And as a result, he has every right to perfectly and perfectly just to just reject us in this world and actually condemn us for everything that we've done. But what we're told is that he didn't. Instead, he entered into our mess and became a man and lovingly told us the hard truths about who we are and showed us our incredible need for him. And the gospel is this. In Jesus, God himself has come to expose our guilt and to call us to repent of our sins and offenses against him and to put our faith in him alone for our salvation. Now, Nobody likes to hear that they're a sinner, do they? Nobody likes to hear that they're broken. It's deeply offensive to us. Moreover, nobody likes to hear that they are completely helpless and dependent on somebody else outside of themselves to come and to save them in this world. That's even more offensive. We hate that idea. And as a result, the real question isn't if you will be offended by Jesus and his claim because that is the very core of what he came to say. The real question is, how will you respond to the offense that he brings? You know, there's an old movie, uh, one of the Star Trek movies, I can't even remember the name of which one it was, but in this one, you know, there's this Romulan general named Nero and there's this great war that happens. He's an incredible aggressor. He comes to destroy uh, the Enterprise and he wants to destroy all of humanity, and the Enterprise intercepts him, and there's this great battle that happens, and in the midst of this great battle, they actually are able to destroy or like wound his ship enough that he can't control it anymore, and his ship, with all of his crew, is being sucked into the sun. And there's this dramatic scene where, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the kind of the hero goes to, uh, onto his screen, onto the kind of the telecom, and he, he uh, reaches out to Nero and he says, your ship is disabled, you're going to die, we will save you. And the response that he gets is that I would rather die than accept your help. I would rather die than accept your help. 
Listen, what we need to understand is that according to the Bible, this is the state of all mankind. In Romans 8, we are told that our hearts are so dark and bent in on ourselves. We get so offended by Jesus and his claims of kingship and lordship in our lives that we would reject him every time, that we actually hate him, it says. And we get so defensive that we would never follow him in this world. And as a result, instead of listening to him and believing his message of salvation, we reject him. And this is exactly what we see in our passage here. If you look here in verse 3, it says, the people there hear the message of Jesus, they respond. And in verse 3, it says, that, is this not the son of Mary? Now, did you catch that the first time? That's an interesting statement. That's something that in our culture you just kind of like fly by and you don't really recognize that much. But what you need to understand is that this is a patriarchal culture. No one was called by their mother's name. Jesus would never have been called the son of Mary. He would have been called the son of Joseph. And so what they're doing here is actually an incredible insult to him. And the reason they're doing it is because you need to understand that this is a small town. And in a small town, you can't hide anything. Some of you know that from the rest of your neighbors and friends. Everyone knows everyone else's business. Like the fact that Jesus' mother and father were married in July and and they gave birth to Jesus in October, right? The Gospels often kind of like tell that story at the beginning, but they, everybody knew what was going on there, especially the people in his hometown. And do you see what they're saying? They're saying, you think that you're such a big deal, Jesus. You think that you're the Messiah. You stroll back into town after making a name for yourself, and you tell us that we need to repent. We need to believe in you, but we know who you are. They are offended by his message. They are offended by who he is. They say to him, you act all high and mighty, but we don't even know who your father really is. And therefore, you're a man without a father. You're a man without an identity. You're a bastard. You're a nobody. And you don't, we don't need to listen to you ever. Instead of hearing him, instead of recognizing the message that he had, they react to him and they reject him. Now, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, like, well, Jesus didn't deserve this kind of rejection. This isn't even true of the story that he had, and that would be true. But that's the whole point of the gospel. He didn't deserve the rejection or any other rejection that he experienced in this life. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus knew that he would be rejected, and he decided to come anyway. Because he knew that because of our sin, we are so broken that we would never be able to break free of our offenses that separates us from God on our own. Therefore, he himself had to come and do something so shocking and so offensive that it would awaken us to the incredible need for his grace. And that's exactly what he did on the cross, we're told. On the cross, Jesus allowed himself to be ultimately rejected so that we could be ultimately accepted. He became fatherless so that we might know our true father. And this is the true scandal of the gospel. The only one who truly had a right to be offended bore our offenses. So that the offenses that God rightly had against us might be forgiven and paid for and covered. Romans 4.25 says this, He who delivered over to death for our offenses and raised for our justification. You know how shocking that is? 
You know, one of my favorite authors is uh, Flannery O'Connor. I'd be shocked if many of you didn't know, at least hear who that is. And if you've never done so, I would highly encourage you to read some of her stories. But I'll warn you, reading Flannery O'Connor is not for the faint of heart. Her stories are often violent and bloody and grotesque. In fact, many people are shocked and deeply offended when they read their stories. However, few people I've ever read in my entire life understand grace better than Flannery O'Connor did. For you see, she saw clearly that the most beautiful thing in the entire world is God's grace. And she desperately wanted people, everyone, to know about this beauty. However, she also understood that the very nature of God's grace is so offensive to most people that before they can come to see its beauty, they must first be shocked awake to understand their need for it. And this is what she said, my audience, therefore, are those who have been so offended by Jesus that they believe that God is dead. And to the heart of hearing, you shout. And to the almost blind, you draw a large and startling figure so that you can awaken them to the reality of their need. For Flannery, the grace of God was not a solemn walk down a church aisle or a, a hushed prayer. It was a bullet, a horn. It was a wake-up call that carries a dramatic message, and that message is that you are not okay and that you will never be okay on your own. You need something someone outside of yourself to come and to save you from the brokenness of your own life and the brokenness of this world. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. The true story of the cross is not a fluffy, feel-good fairy tale. It's violent and it's bloody and it's grotesque and it will shock and offend you. There is no question about that. But if you allow that offense to awaken you to your need for his grace, you will come to feel the full beauty of his love in your life. And when that happens, something amazing will happen. You won't have to choose between facts and feelings. The facts of his coming will lead you to the true feeling of his love, and the true feeling of his love will lead you back to the facts of his coming. And that those things together, within the context of his grace, will actually transform your life and allow you to engage in the world in such a way that you won't be lost anymore. Wouldn't that be nice in the midst of our world? This is what the beauty of the gospel does. This is why the offense of the gospel is so important to our lives. And it's the only hope that we have in a world that is so lost. But glory be to God that he has come and he has made a way through the offense of the gospel for us to be reunited with him. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you that the Bible just doesn't tell us a bunch of stuff that we want to hear. We thank you that you love us enough that you don't just kind of people please and that you cover up and that you just say things that are nice and fluffy, but you, O oh Lord, have come and that you have told us the truth of the depth of our need, the depth of our brokenness, and that you have done something so shocking and so violent and so grotesque on the cross that it oh Lord, can actually awaken us from our depth of offense. Lord, we pray that that would be the case today. I pray that for my own heart. Father, it's so easy to, to get sleepy 
to turn in on myself, to believe that I am a good person, that I don't need you, that I can do things on my own, to get offended uh, by even the suggestion that you are my Lord and Savior in this world. But Lord, I pray that the gospel would break through my heart and everyone's hearts here today, that you would show us the beauty of your grace, that you would drive us to the wonder of your love, and that through that, Lord, that you would transform us both individually and as your people, and that you would motivate us to serve you in every aspect of our lives. We thank you for this word, Lord. We thank you for your love for us, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name.